Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a tremendous interview today with Peter Todd, Bitcoin core developer, uh, chief troll, I suppose, right? Uh, welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you. Good introduction. You know, to start off, you've made, what, 60 commits to the Bitcoin core protocol that you've been recognized for. What exactly does it mean to work on the core protocol to be a core developer? Well, you know, first and foremost, I'd point out that uh, number of commits isn't the interesting thing. I mean, my, uh, myself, you know, a lot of those commits are simple things like fixing documentation, you know, adding new tests and so on. And what really matters tends to be more how well you do code review, how well you go criticize other people's ideas, how do you go find flaws. You know, someone like Gregory Maxwell, for instance, I think has done uh, maybe like 70 commits or something. But I'd rate his contributions as certainly more than mine. And, you know, that's not reflected in the number of commits. That's reflected in what kind of knowledge he has and what kind of bugs he's uncovered and, you know, what kind of code review he's done. So what what exactly does this mean, like, working on the core protocol? You know, most software, there tends to be a lot of code actually written and rewritten and so on. Bitcoin, because the stakes are so high, because mistakes are can create so much damage, you know, you're looking at a $2 billion economy. And for us, it's mostly reviewing other people's code with fine-tooth comb and figuring out, you know, what are the flaws? What are the long-term impacts? You know, a simple example is a pull request I did, which meant that every transaction Bitcoin Core would send would be, would use end lock time feature so that it couldn't be mined at a block height less than what the block height was. You know, that's, a very, that's like a one-line code change, maybe two-line code change. And to implement this, you know, you have to go fix bugs in like 20 different wallets that would go and handle these transactions incorrectly. Not to mention, well, why are you doing this in the first place? Because we're trying to go and set up minor incentives in the right way, you know, five years down in the future to prevent miners from profiting by reorganizing the blockchain. And like all this stuff, all this analysis, that's easy, 100 times more work than actually writing those two lines of code. Yeah, it's actually like going through there, figuring out what the bugs are going to be. Like Mike Hearn's very first commit to Bitcoin actually hard forked the entire network and yeah. almost blew it all up. I mean, yep. uh, Dr. Woolley had to figure out how to fix it. Same with Greg Maxwell. I yep. remember everybody sending their texts around. So there are there is a big community that's really like looking out for this core protocol, this core code, doing a lot of the hard work behind the scenes because this is the fundamental foundation that yep. all of Bitcoin is built on? No, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, I mean, something you got to remember is that when you make a buck that, for example, forks Bitcoin, I mean, miners alone are losing tens of thousands of dollars an hour. 
you know, all the businesses that depend on Bitcoin are themselves losing, losing tens of thousands of dollars per hour in lost business. You know, this is incredibly big cost for even a simple mistake. So, you know, you spend a lot of time reviewing things very carefully and thinking through what the implications are. And fortunately, we have a team that tends to be very good at it. Yeah. Now, when we're when we're talking about that team, you're you're referring mainly to the Bitcoin core client. Is that the client yeah. that we're talking about? It's, yeah. It's the one that's uh, was the Satoshi reference implementation yeah. client and has evolved since then. Yeah. Uh, because you know, actually, like when I funded Armory, part of that you you could say was forking that client between the network consensus applications and the wallet security applications. Yeah. Yeah. And so with with Armory, we've really been focusing on these enterprise level wallet security, the generation, creation, storage of the private keys themselves. Yeah. Whereas what you're talking about is the network consensus. And this is what Blockstream raised their $21 million to be focused on, right? With Dr. Adam Back, Dr. Uh, Peter Woolley, Greg Maxwell, Mark Friedenbach, a lot of these guys, they're working on the on the core network consensus. So when we're talking about the core network consensus, you're talking, these are the rules of the network? Yeah. You know, what are some examples so, of these rules? Something I should point out too is, it's often misunderstood, but Bitcoin Core is not just the reference client. Part of Bitcoin Core is the protocol definition. And what's funny about Bitcoin and quite unique in software is getting consensus critical code to be in consensus is so difficult. Nobody has been able to do it with like English human readable specifications. So, you know, for instance, like with HTTP, your RFC for the HTTP protocol might be you know, some long, I know how many hundreds of pages worth of human readable text. And then you have implementations of it like Internet Explorer, Mozilla, previously Netscape and so on. All those implementations don't actually agree with each other. You know, they work subtly differently. And in the case of rendering a web page, it's not a big deal. You know, if one person's web page renders differently than the other, that's fine. In Bitcoin Core, that might be the difference between you having money and me having money. And we'd rather know who has what money. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's kind of the reason that we have yeah. this, this magic internet money yeah. to begin yeah. with, right? Yeah, so, you know, getting consensus over who owns what money is very hard. And the best way we found to write the protocol specification has been to just write it in C++ source code. Now, when we're, when we're talking about writing this code, keeping everything in consensus, I mean, this is highly technical... I mean, it's the bleeding edge when it comes to computer science yes. and distributed networks, right? Oh, absolutely is. Absolutely. And I, I, I would I'd point out this, do, making this work is probably a task that's harder than writing safety-critical avionics software. And I've actually done a little bit of that kind of work and, you know, works with people who've done a lot more than I ever did. And the key thing is in Bitcoin... Oh, it's the black Failure isn't an option. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of avionics. But, you know, in Bitcoin, failure isn't an option. And for that matter, when you do fail, you damn well better fail in the exact same way as everyone else. Like, if, if I'm in a 747 and my flight's avionics software crashes, you know, my autopilot shuts off. Well, if autopilot shuts off in a different 747 in a slightly different way, that's completely okay. I mean, I'd rather have the autopilot work, 
But if it shuts off in a different way, that's all right, so long as we build in safety mechanisms. So whichever way it failed in that one case, and then the plane gets on the ground safely. In Bitcoin, if my node fails in a different way than your node does, what that probably means is that somebody has money that some that on another node somebody else had different money. And that's not acceptable. It must always fail in the exact same way. And that's a harder challenge than, like I say, writing that avionics software. Yeah, because, I mean, with the avionics software, we're, we're talking about, you know, it's okay for, like, one 747 to crash, but we don't want all of the 747s in the world to crash at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, yeah. that would just be unbelievable yeah. type of disaster. So, you know, who, who are kind of the lead players in this? I mean, we've got... Uh, Gandalf the the Grey, Dr. Adam Back, he has a PhD in distributed systems, been working on virtual currencies for decades now, cited in the Satoshi white paper. You could say he's kind of leading the charge. Uh, We've got Dr. Wadimir uh, Vanderlaan, we've got Dr. Peter Woolley, uh, you know, all of these PhDs in computer science. Uh, Of course, I'd go point out Gregory Maxwell. uh, uh, If I want to be a bit flippant, I'd say he barely graduated high school. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, I, I think what's interesting about Bitcoin is not so much, you know, the titles people bring to it, but rather the fact that it's so new that nobody has a degree in decentralized consensus. There are no academic programs yet. You know, the academic research is starting, but it's not to the point where it's sort of become a bit more formalized. So this really is the bleeding edge of new discovery. And... And if I were to kind of say, you know, who had contributed to it in terms of theory, I mean, Adam Back's certainly on there for contributing to the idea of proof of work in the first place. You know, then in terms of the development on the Bitcoin core itself, you know, Peter Wool and uh, Gregor Maxwell really are your leaders there. And, you know, they've the two of them have really made Bitcoin continue to work. You know, Bitcoin 0.1 as shipped by Satoshi did not work. It didn't scale to even one megabyte blocks, you know, it didn't, it had a lot of stuff wrong with it. And we've spent a lot of time fixing those problems and, uh, you know, it's been a tremendous amount of work there. So how much of the current Bitcoin core code base would you say has been written by, say, the Blockstream guys, for example? Well, in terms of the, the code base related to consensus, a lot of it is still there. Um, people have kind of touched it, if you will, in that they've moved code around. Refactored it. Yeah, but the actual code base itself that actually, you know, that actually goes and makes the decisions on what blocks are valid and invalid, you know, you might be safe to say it's like, say, 50% still dates back to Satoshi. However, there's a really key thing, which is OpenSSL, you know, which is the code base that verifies transactions. And... Peter Wool and Gregor Maxwell have done an incredible amount of work uh, replacing OpenSSL with a from scratch, you know, re- you know, written from scratch crypto library called libSCCP256K1. Right. Yeah, because we use a particular curve in Bitcoin that uh, is hopefully much more solid <laughs> with its constants <laughs> and how they're yeah, integrated. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, that's that's a whole other matter <laughs> with uh, NSA backdooring uh, ECC standards. We we really dodged a bullet there, but... Uh, yeah, it's funny. It, we I actually mean, used, I think, Crypto++ instead of OpenSSL and yeah, Armory. Yeah, um, and I can guarantee you there were cases in your library that would not have met the requirements for consensus. In Armory, that doesn't matter. 
you know. You, right, because, well, we... You're, you're we, not validating blocks. Yeah, well, cause, yeah, because we use Bitcoin Core underneath exactly. Armory, although we, we've Which recently... Which is a very good decision. Well, we did that because we didn't want to duplicate work on yep. network consensus. Like, no, yep. why, re, why reinvent the wheel 50 times? Yep. Like, you know, we need to get our smartest minds working on uh, what they can yep. be best at, you know, specialization. And Armory is one of the few wallets... Uh, companies who've done that and i'd say that is the right decision and you guys got it right there yeah we, we we've actually released a super node so anybody can run their own super nodes now uh and build on top of it white label yeah. so if you want to run your own blockchain.info that yeah. actually sees whether satoshi moved his yeah. coins or not yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. You, know, you can yeah. use armory instead of uh, relying on someone else yeah you, you know when when we're talking about extensifying the bitcoin network the code the software you know, making it larger, more scalable. The block size debate has been uh, just voraciously kind of had yeah. between you, Mike Hearn, Gavin yeah. Andreessen. Do we need more computer science and less noise like oh, yeah, uh, Nick Sasbo talked about? Yeah. Or do we just need to run and jump off increasing the block size? Because in my opinion, that just kind of kicks a larger can down the road but doesn't solve a fundamental scalability well, you issue. Know, in terms of this... Uh, thing about computer science and testing i mean i myself you know in previous uh previous line of work i've worked on things where you know we had budgets we had projects we had potential losses way less than multiple billions of dollars and when you looked at the hoops we had to jump through in terms of testing it was i mean it's just miles ahead of anything that's being done by the raise the block size crowd you know it's it's just incredible how little how flippant yeah. I mean, as an example, like I, I suggested to Gavin uh, on the development mailing list, you know, well, if you're going to propose a eight megabytes and increasing block size, why don't you go on testnet, set the dates when that block size increase c- comes into place a year prior or two years prior, you know, something so that we can create a, an actual test blockchain, test how syncing works, test how the performance works, you know, make sure we're not running into performance problems that are unexpected make sure everyone's ready to deal with these larger blocks, you know, make sure syncing up works. And Gavin's response was, but then no one would use testnet. Well, it kind of says something. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, well, I mean, it, why it, you're basically they? saying the performance is bad enough that we can't test this, but well, then why are you doing this on production? Like, how are you putting this change into place that literally has never been tested in a real world environment? Just right into the live production machine. Yeah. Now, now yeah. if if we, I if, mean, people have literally never synced up from one node to another a full eight megabyte blockchain, other than some internal test and block stream that I know about, and uh, and, and they're all against it. On, yeah, and they're all against reasons, it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and I think, think it's the, notably, and no, these are the PhDs yeah, in computer yeah, and, science and distributed yeah, systems. Yeah, and, and I know that they've, you know, the results of their tests are pretty ugly. It, I mean, it would literally take weeks to sync up a full node on a good, fast system. Now, could this actually be an intended consequence? Because we've noticed that as the blockchain has grown exponentially, you know, every 10 minutes we get another another block, right? That we've actually lost the number of online users of Armory, you know, people that yep. are using Armory on a regular basis, likely because it's increased the cost of actually running your own full node. So, yep. I mean, could this be part of an intended consequence of increasing the block size is to actually increase the costs on the individual user so that it 
it economically or time costs disincentivizes them from running their own full nodes and thus encourages people using Bitcoin to use it through trusted intermediaries such as Coinbase or Circle, etc. Well, you know, I'll point out, I mean, if you're uh, someone like Coinbase, every single one of your merchants, customers, who could run a full node and process payments on their own with, you know, a script that some guy with some PHP knowledge could create in a week. Well, what's preventing them from jumping ship from your Coinbase to that script? Having a large block size is one potential thing. Equally, from the point of view of Coinbase, the cost of a large block size is nothing. They're not the one incurring the costs of less uh, decentralization. They're already a highly centralized, highly regulated company that has no benefits from the promise of, you know, be your own bank. For Coinbase, that's not a good thing. And, you know, if I were an advisor to Coinbase like uh, Gavin is, well, if I were to be honest to Coinbase, I'd be saying, yeah, you should be pushing this stuff as much as you can because smaller block size isn't good for you. Equally, the flip side of that, which is, you know, how are we going to deal with higher transaction fees? Now, let's be perfectly honest here. The easiest thing to do is centralize part of payments. And as an example, that's what the Silk Road did. When I, you know, when I would go use Silk Road, you'd be putting money into Silk Road and buying your drugs and then getting the money out at the other end with one Bitcoin transaction. Because all the tr payments were happening off the chain in private, you know, with no transaction fees. Silk Road did that mainly for the privacy, but the lower transaction fees are certainly uh, going to happen. On the other hand, if you're Coinbase and be telling regulators, oh, you know, all the Bitcoin transactions are on the blockchain, you can see them all, there's no privacy, don't worry about this. You're not really in a position where you can be a part of this new future where a lot of payments for the at the low end are off the blockchain. Now, when we're talking about these transaction fees, I mean, now we're getting into, you know, the fourth network effect. Bitcoin's got seven going on at the same time. Fourth network yep. effect is going to be the miners and the security of the blockchain with hashing power. In order to incentivize the miners, we need an increase in value or price of the Bitcoins relative to, you know, dollars or whatever. And so, you know, supply is known and fixed in advance speculative demand is just fickle with the market uh transactional demand is really the, the the major variable that when we're looking at the elasticity doesn't really change that much whether bitcoin's five dollars a coin or ten thousand dollars a coin it still provides that value of the immutable persistence in the yeah. blockchain assuming we've got enough security behind the blockchain yeah. and so i mean you're talking about we, we could potentially have users like banks or whatever where getting it into the blockchain might be worth five or ten dollars yep. uh, for a transaction fee yep. and that wouldn't actually necessarily be a bad thing because uh people are actually paying an economic cost to use bitcoin as opposed I, to just I, a bunch I, I'd of also satoshi point dice out, transactions i mean for my personal opinion and i'm, I'm not going to claim this is necessarily shared by all the other um, core bitcoin developers is that you know as we go into that future when transaction fees you know, start getting up to 10 cents, a dollar, you know, a few dollars, chances are we're going to come up with a, another breakthrough and make the blockchain itself scalable. You know, I mean, I know I've done some work uh, on it myself with my tree chains proposals, and I'm sure something like that's going to come along eventually, you know, in the next, say, five years. Well, and don't we already have proposals for scalability, such as the Lightning Network? Yep, uh, absolutely. You know, 59-page white paper yep. that Dr. Adam Back, you know, had to tell Gavin 
you know, it sounds like you don't even understand the very basic fundamentals of what's being proposed in the Lightning yeah. Network. I well, mean, that that's kind of a stinging rebuke from a PhD in distributed systems. Yeah, it, it kind of is. And it kind of bothers me the way that I think from on the Bitcoin development mailing list, I mean, let's ignore the trolls on Reddit and stuff, but, you know, on what's supposed to be the, you know, development mailing list, the science or research, you know, you've got a subset of people who just seem immune to reason. And... I'll be quite frank. I mean, I think was well, that Gavin, is that because the uh, the sun revolves around the Earth? Well, you and know, that's just the way it is. Why I, are you I, arguing? I, with I would it? say this is kind of like trying to debate global warming against people who have decided to refuse to believe the fact that you can do a laboratory test that shows very clearly carbon dioxide meets the criteria for greenhouse gas. Now, it's completely okay to have a huge debate about, you know, should we actually go and solve this problem? What would it cost humanity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Is this outweighed by natural effects? That's fine. But when you're trying to debate against people who reject even the most basic facts, it's, it's frustrating. And I think it makes for a very toxic environment where that turns away knowledgeable people because they know that their arguments just are going to go nowhere. And perhaps even worse, the rebuttals of nonsense to their arguments – are then going to end up on Reddit and get trolled to death. Well, and because, I mean, we've already seen, like, the Department of Defense has a budget for trolls on, on internet does. conversation yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't necessarily know, like, how much of the Reddit conversation is legitimate, you know, from legitimate users, or whether they're just being funded by, you know, maybe Goldman Sachs has a budget for funding stuff like this. I mean, but well, I mean, it, I, I happen to know that there are, you know, people researching this stuff and... They haven't. Um, this hasn't been published and peer reviewed yet, but you know there is very strong evidence that a lot of the debaters on Reddit are trolls that appear to be paid accounts. You know, and I'll let I'll let the people involved publish when they I think they're ready, and obviously they kind of don't want to give away their secrets for how they know some of this stuff. But you know, like from what from what I'm told by these people, yeah, I, I can see that. And yeah, you know, I think though. Sounds like a good opportunity for Bitcoin and micropayments to be establishing reputation by, uh, you know, how much does it cost for your for your opinion, for your voice? Well, <laughs> y- y- you know, the interesting thing is, like, that kind of thinking, of course, also seen in dark markets like the Silk Road. So we do have academics actively trying to figure out how do you make these systems work. So far, they uh, haven't had too much success. Uh, Andrew Miller is really interesting to talk to about this, but... I don't know. It's 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 kind of one of those interesting social science questions that Bitcoin as a system is bringing up. Is there is there anything you're particularly worried about with Bitcoin? I mean, you know, the the U.S. Supreme Court, all you know, the more speech, the better. It's the sunlight's the best disinfectant. You know, if we've got like trolls or nefarious actors, like let's drag them out into the court of public opinion. Everybody has access to all the source code all of the time. That's part of what makes Bitcoin great is the uh, the sunlight, the transparency, the disinfectant. I mean, what are what are you mainly worried about? Because, you know, what people are squawking about today, it'll be gone and under the bridge, you know, a couple months from now. So, I mean, what are your, like, what kind of keeps you up at night about Bitcoin? I, I think the big thing that this whole debate's kind of telling, telling me is that we need to work more on education. Um, we need to do a better job on, you know, for instance, Bitcoin.org development uh, documentation. You know, we need I mean, David to, Harding's done a pretty good job yeah, over you know, there. It's a lot of work. Oh, it absolutely is. But, you know, I think we need to go in further with it and explain, like, what decentralization is, you know, who you're actually trusting when you use Bitcoin. 
you know, when you use, say, an SPV wallet, you know, who, who are you actually trusting? And a lot of people don't understand these issues well. And I think uh, better education there is, you know, something that the way the block size debate's developing, uh, you know, is indicated that's needed. So I, I personally am hoping I can go find some funding and, you know, do, do some more work <laughs> on that. Uh, you know, it's always kind of one of those things of getting manpower and funding from people who understand the system. But, uh, you know, I... I, th- I think there's some uh, hope there and uh, equally, you know, when I go talk to, you know, the actual companies working in the space, especially in the financial industry, you know, doing real projects, you know, real work in the space, they tend to have very different opinions than say the Reddit mobs. And I think that, you know, that, that to me kind of says that what education we're doing right now is working, not necessarily as well as I'd like, but it's going in the right direction. Yeah, I think there's what Bitcoin obituaries or something. Bitcoin's died yeah. like sixty times yeah. <laughs> already. Uh, I'm sure we'll see a couple more. Yeah, everything is not like doom and gloom. We've actually got a very bright future. So you know, the the flip side of the that question there would be, you what are you most optimistic about with Bitcoin? Like, what do you like? What are you really kind of hopeful about with this whole distributed consensus, immutably persistent uh, technology? You know, in some ways, in terms of it actually functioning. One of the things that's kind of very hopeful is we've been very lucky that the Bitcoin mining community have had a long, a long-term enough view that they haven't taken advantage of the flaws in the Bitcoin protocol right now. Like I know, I know very well that'd be very easy for the, you know, top three, top four miners to take a more short-term view and say, all right, let's go squeeze money out of the system and to hell with the long-term consequences. And I think they'd get away with, you know, things like selfish mining attacks. Fortunately, they haven't been looking at this. And I think we've been kind of lucky that, you know, even though those protections kind of aren't in the protocol design, for other reasons, we've had that extra layer of security, which has really helped. You know, it's not something we should rely on. I think we really want deeply layered security with multiple layers of protection. But we're very lucky that we've had this kind of backup plan that's kind of been working and... You know, people are altruistic enough to make it work for now. Well, it's still an experiment. Yep. Well, it's uh, been a wonderful interview. Thank you for taking the time. I know you've got a busy schedule. Ran into you at the BitDevs in New York City. Uh, I'm in town for some meetings also. Uh, So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do some education for uh, all the thousands of listeners of the podcast. Thank you. Get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.